Hello, folks. We are with Bob Allison, Professor Robert Allison of Suffolk University, and a frequent guest on my radio show. And he's here uh, during this uh, time of staying in by way of Zoom to talk about a place that we went together some time ago, just before this outbreak, the Copse Hill Burying Ground. And I was fascinated by it. I hadn't really uh, spent much time there and I knew very little about it and what you told me was so interesting that I wanted to share it with the many. So here we are. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How about you, Bradley? I'm hanging in there. That's so, good. We, first, I guess the name, Cops Hill. Cops Hill. Who was Cop or Cops? Well, I should have looked that up, but Cop owned the land and there was a windmill on it at one point and it is uh, the highest point in the North End. So it was actually the second burying ground in Boston after the one that is next to King's Chapel. And the North End, you know, was actually the first neighborhood. It's the oldest urban neighborhood in the United States. And so there needed to be a burying ground there. And remember the Puritans called what we would call a cemetery, a burying ground. They were not sentimental people. And we're burying these bodies because otherwise it causes a public health problem. And so the soul is the important thing to the Puritans. Your body is what's caused you all of your problems. Once you're done with your body, your soul goes on to its immortality. So yeah, is that why soul. the grim headstones of the time with the skulls and the wings, yes. it really wasn't very romantic, yeah. didn't make you feel real good about no, dying? It's dead. You know, there's actually uh, some teachers up at Beverly High School a number of years ago did a study of this, and they saw that in the 18th century that iconography changes. So they start having urns with um, ferns or willows coming out of them, that kind of sentimental idea. It starts on the periphery, but Boston remained very much orthodox. So the, you do have the skeleton or a skull with wings and the resurrection the wings represent. That's the important and you know, people mourned. In fact, mourning was a ritual. Samuel Sewell, who was a judge in Boston in this period, kept a diary. And among the most important things he ever did were go to funerals. And he would record if he got gloves, because if you die, if someone died their funeral, the family would give out gloves to the mourners. And actually the gloves go out of fashion about the time of the American Revolution as part of the non-importation agreement. So you would get gloves, you would get other things at a funeral as a way of remembering the dead. See, so, yeah, the gravestones themselves would be, you know, would be very straightforward. And the carving might be a skull or a skeleton uh, or other symbol of death. I see. So uh, the land was procured. Uh, do we know who, like, who was in charge when they bought it? Well, it would have been the selectmen of the town who bought it probably, I'm guessing, in the 1660s. I could be wrong. And so it's sometime in the, within the first couple of decades of the arrival. You know, there already is a meeting house established in the North End, probably by about the 1650s or 60s, though the burying grounds aren't really attached to the meeting house. You know, our idea of the meeting house with the graves around it, that's a bit later. And the Congregationalists wouldn't have burying grounds in their meeting houses. They're separate. And if we know the physical geography of Boston, the first burying ground, which is now on um, Tremont Street at King's Chapel, that would have been really on the periphery of the settlement. 
It's at the foot of Beacon Hill and toward Boston Common, but it's way outside the settlement. Copps Hill too, the real settlement in the North End would have been around North Square where the Paul Revere house is. So this is a good way away from that. You're not burying people in close proximity to where people are living. Then the third burying ground is the one on Boston Common. And that's really at the very foot of the town. So you have these burying grounds established on the edge of the town. And late, later on in the 19th century, this movement begins to create these pastoral cemeteries. And the, idea, the word cemetery comes from the Greek for being asleep. So um, Mount Auburn in Cambridge and Forest Hills in Boston in Roxbury are among the first of these rural cemeteries. And so at that point, a lot of people who had been buried in the granary or on the common were exhumed and reburied out in Forest Hills or at Mount Auburn with somewhat elaborate plots. And people would go to the family plot on Sundays for a picnic. And in fact, in the 19th century, it was said the three things every true Bostonian would want were a reading card at the Boston Athenaeum, a pew at Trinity Church, and a plot at Mount Auburn Cemetery. Huh. Now, how about some notables? That was, that was uh, one of the fun parts uh, there, of course, the, the cottons. I mean, yeah, the, the Mathers, the cotton yeah, the uh, increase. Yeah. And then there, there's a, a, a significant African-American there as well. There is, there is a significant African-American. There's actually, this is, uh, here's a postcard from probably the early 20th century of Copps Hill. You see it is somewhat pastoral. We think that Phyllis Wheatley might be buried in Copps Hill. Many of Boston's African-Americans were buried there. And sadly, most of those graves aren't marked because to buy a stone requires some investment. And so a lot, of, a lot of graves aren't marked, but Phyllis Wheatley may be buried in Copps Hill. And the last I heard, it may be around the fence that's toward the northern end of the burying ground. There's a large empty space. And it's also where, um, one second, I will show you. So here's a nice view of the burying ground and Prince Paul. Yes. Prince Hall was the founder of the Prince Hall Masons. In fact, the first at the African-American Masonic Lodge. He was a leather dresser in Boston, and he knew a lot of the guys he did business with, like uh, Joseph Warren and Paul Revere, were members of the Masons. And he thought, well, why don't I join the Masons? They wouldn't let him because he was black. And so he goes to some of the British soldiers who are occupying Boston, knowing that they're also Masons. And they arranged to get a charter for Prince Hall to have a lodge of Masons. And it's delivered to him, it's delivered to them at Castle Island. This is during the end of the British occupation of Boston. So think about it. Prince Hall is someone who knows Joseph Warren, Paul Revere, and Warren and Revere were successively, successively the masters or the grand masters of the Masonic Lodge, the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts but he goes to the British soldiers who are also Masons, get him a charter delivered to Castle Island. So the Prince Hall Masons, it's one of the largest African-American organizations in the country. Now behind this relatively modern um, stone, and in fact, I don't, sorry, I don't have a full picture of the stone that has a, a broken column, which is a bit of Masonic sim symbolism. There is a smaller stone to Prince Hall put up at the time of his death in uh, 1807. 
he and his son Primus start the first school in the basement of the um, African meeting house for uh, African-American children. So Prince Hall is really quite a mover in Boston society. And so he is buried at the granary. A number of years ago, I was leading a group of teachers on a tour of the Freedom Trail and it was a summer day and there were a number of naval ships in town and uh, paralleling us as we were going from site to site was an African-American in a Navy uniform. And so there are a lot of people walking the Freedom Trail and finally we get to the granary, or I'm sorry, Copps Hill, which is usually my last stop and he was there too. And he was really coming to see Prince Hall because he also was a Mason. And so it was great. He then got to tell my teachers a bit about the Prince Hall Masons and what they do. So I'm always able to learn things from people that I waylay along the Freedom Trail. So why do you suppose the British granted the charter, I uh, granted him a charter where the America, the, the natives would not, is it because they wanted some loyalty from him, maybe to spy? Eh, possibly, possibly, and possibly they were simply being truer to the whole Masonic idea of brotherhood and, you know, fraternal. And also they knew they were leaving. And that's really going to, yeah, I'm not quite sure. We don't really know. We do know is they did it and it was a good thing to do. And I think it does make us think, too, about the relationships between people here in this occupied town during the British occupation we sometimes want to perceive it as this very strict dichotomy between us and them. But there are a lot of personal relationships going on. Later on, I think it's during Shays' Rebellion, um, uh, Prince Hall raises a regiment of African-Americans to fight, to put down Shays' Rebellion. They're called the Bucks of America. And John Hancock, who was the governor at the time, gives them the flag. You know, Prince Hall lived on the north slope of Beacon Hill along with most of the other African-Americans in Boston. So Prince Alzer is one of the really, um, to me, most significant stones in the burying ground. You know, Cotton Mather is also buried there. Was the British occupation good for business or bad for business? It was terrible for business because okay. most of the Patriots leave town. And so the popula civilian population of Boston falls really dramatically. Yeah, there are more people in town, so that's one thing. But a lot of the, uh, it was also, there was also kind of a, um, a lag in trade anyway, the wake of the Seven Years' War. So business hadn't been good, and then suddenly you have another couple of thousand soldiers. Also remember, during the occupation in 1774 and five, the harbor is closed, the port is closed. So trade is shut off completely. And this is why a lot of the people who can get out of town do. And also a smallpox outbreak happens. And that um, never a good thing to be bottled up in a town when there's smallpox raging. Right. Let's see. Let's talk about the uh, Mathers. There's a lot to talk about there. There's a lot to talk about the Mathers. So I'll just give you the floor on the, okay, on the so, Mathers. Yeah, so... Um, Increased Mather becomes the pastor of the second meeting house, which is the, the North Meeting House at North Square, not to be confused with the Old North Church. Mather's Meeting House becomes known as Old North, but it's not the Old North Church, which is the Anglican Church. And so you know, Richard, I'm sorry, Increase Mather, his father was Richard Mather, the second minister, the first minister of the first church in uh, Dorchester. And Increase Mather 
is really one of the most formidable characters in 17th century Massachusetts. And then his son, Cotton, is his successor at the meeting house, although is, I should say, his assistant. Because Increase Mather lives well into the 1720s when he's in his 90s and is still very active. And Cotton Mather, who becomes his assistant when he's in his 20s, is still his assistant when Cotton is in his 60s. He only outlives his father by about half a dozen years. And, but the two of them are really formidable intellects and leaders in the community. Increase Mather becomes president of Harvard. And he also goes to England in 1691 and to, to negotiate a new charter with the British government. And Cotton Mather really becomes the first historian of Massachusetts. He writes a massive book, The Magnalia Christi Americana, that is the glory of God in America, about the history. Much of what we know about this early generation comes from Cotton Mather and his history. And then when Cotton Mather, when Increase Mather died, it was like the death of the patriarch. It's a phenomenon in Boston. And five years later, Cotton Mather died, and it wasn't that significant an event. Why wasn't Cotton allowed to become the boss of Harvard? He wanted, did he want to be? He very much wanted to be president of Harvard. Cotton Mather very much wanted to be president of Harvard, very much wanted people to respect him, and that always eluded him. I think it might have been partly his personality. Um, he was somewhat priggish and somewhat conceited, uh, not without good reason to be conceited. Uh, you know, he, in, he becomes, we think, a fellow of the Royal Society, and ever after he will sign his name with FRS, that is Fellow of the Royal Society. Now, this is why Benjamin Franklin really lampoons him in the silent do-good letters, is someone who's very good at pointing out the faults of others and reproving them for their faults. That is, you know, Cotton Mather is always good with advice. And Franklin tells this story about coming to visit Mather after Franklin had left town. He comes back and goes to call on Mather and in Mather's house in the North End. And Mather is showing him out uh, through a different passageway. And Franklin has turned, looking to Mather, as the two of them are, Mather is walking forward, so Franklin is walking backward and still talking, and suddenly Cotton Mather shouts, stoop, stoop, stoop. Franklin has no idea what he's talking about until he feels his head hit the beam. And then Mather, uh, Franklin writes this about 60 years later in a letter to Mather's son. And he said, your father, never missed an opportunity of instructing. And he said to me, you are young and have the world to go through. Stoop often as you go through it and you will save yourself many a hard thump. And it's interesting to hear the difference in the language. Like today, if we yelled stoop, no one would know what to do. No, no, yeah. Speaking of language, I'll ask the question I, I've always wanted and forgotten to ask, wanted to and forgot to ask, the names Increase and Cotton first was, was what's the significance? Is, is Increase just a general good thing because more is better? Or it is, is there something yeah. else going on? Well, you know, to increase is to, it's not simply more, but it is a good thing. And, you know, we have a lot of these wonderful names that are things like, um, um, I'm trying to think of some others. There's one, uh, Resolution is another, or um, 
you know, steady or other names you may see as a first name. It's a, sometimes it's a habit we want someone to have. Cotton is named for his other grandfather. That is, Richard Mather was the first minister of the first church, and John Cotton was probably the leading Puritan theologian of the 18th, of the 17th century. And he comes over in 1633. And increase Mather winds up marrying, it's kind of complicated. He does marry John Cotton's daughter, I believe, but he also marries John Cotton's widow. It's not the mother of Increase Mather's first wife. It's kind of a complicated genealogy. So Increase Mather marries John Cotton's daughter, and then their child is Cotton Mather. And then later, when John Cotton has died, his widow marries Increase Mather. It's a complicated um, thing, but not uncommon. So Cotton is a surname. One of the one of my favorite stories about the Mathers is, unlike today, they were religious folks who were in favor of vaccination when it was yeah. first when it first came up and people were wondering about it. They they believed in it. Whereas the so-called scientist was a Franklin, did not. Yeah, the Franklins were opposed to it. And I think, you know, Increase Mather is really interested in the way God's world works. This is how he becomes a fellow of the Royal Society. He has a microscope. He's looking at things under the microscope because he's trying to unlock this. And remember, Isaac Newton doesn't have a problem with believing in the creation. And he is also trying to unlock the truth in God's world. I think we have a big division now on both sides between this, saying you can't uh, be religious and also um, you know, believe that there are mysteries that you're trying to solve, that is scientific mysteries. So it's a much different era uh, where you are able to think about this. And so the Mathers really are championing, or Cotton Mathers really championing inoculation as a way of preventing a, an epidemic and he's blasted for this by the Franklins and others, because he's relying, you know, the, he reads a issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society that talks about inoculation being done in Turkey. And they say, well, wait a minute, you're taking the testimony of Turks. And then there's, um, he has an enslaved person, Onesimus, living with him, who's from West Africa. And in West Africa, they practice inoculation to prevent a, small, a severe smallpox outbreak. So Mather is gathering evidence for this at a time when you know, the, some of the scientific minds are not. So it's really something to their credit. It's easy to lampoon Cotton Mather as Benjamin Franklin did, but we do have to take him seriously. So yeah, so their small uh, monument in the Copse Hill Burying Ground is really a place to ponder all of these changes. Do you get the sense that even though Franklin lampooned Mather, that they were, that they would, they had respect for each other and would hang out? I don't think, you know, I don't think the Mathers or Franklin were much at hanging out. They both, <laughs> they all were very busy and wanting to be constantly busy. Um, but yes, they do have respect, will have respect for each other. Remember, Franklin had lampooned Mather and the newspaper that his brother started was meant to attack the Mathers. And then two years after Franklin leaves Boston, he comes back and he goes to call on Cotton Mather. And he, in Philadelphia, sets up these little clubs that are very much like the little clubs that Mather set up. And Mather's clubs would begin each meeting by asking, what good have I done today? 
that his mother every day was thinking, what good have I done today? And at the end of the day, uh, that's the end of the beginning of the day, what good shall I do today? That's exactly what Franklin is going to ask himself every morning and every evening. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, great respect for each other. And then at the end of, in the 1770s, Mather's son writes to Franklin, not knowing anything about this earlier relationship, but he has great respect for Benjamin Franklin as one of the foremost men in the world. So yeah, it's, and it's, so it's a different time. I've just been reading um, the, a new edition of the letters of Thomas Hutchinson came out. Hutchinson is the big villain of the American Revolution. But there are letters between him and Benjamin Franklin when Franklin is in London. And, Ma and Hutchinson is coming to get the idea that Franklin really isn't a man of great principle. Well, he, he, he trusts him more than he does the others in the revolutionary movement. So Let, let's finish up with the very interesting stone at Cobbs Hill, yes. burying ground of, yes. of the, that contains the, the bullet marks. Yes. Let me see if I can find it. Actually, here. they would be ball marks. They didn't have bullets at the time. Yeah. This is one of my favorites. Here you can see a bit of it. This is the grave of Daniel Malcolm. And Daniel Malcolm, the stone says, a true son of liberty and an enemy to oppression and one of the foremost in opposing the Revenue Acts in North America. And he wanted to be buried at least 10 feet down so he would be beyond the reach of British revenue officers. And the stone has been there since 1769 when, Mac, when Malcolm died. And we think that these chips you can see, and unfortunately you can't see that one of them took out the eye in the skull, in the skull on Daniel Malcolm's grave. We think they were made by British soldiers when this was a battery during the Battle of Bunker Hill. That is, this was an occupied point for the um, British army. And here they have this grave of this guy who's an enemy to oppression, a true front son of liberty. So they're taking pot shots at it. Now, one of my favorite parts of the story, which I've only just recently learned, one of the most hated characters in Boston in the 1770s was a guy named John Malcolm. And John Malcolm was a revenue collector. In fact, in Maine, he had been tarred and feathered because he was such a avid supporter of the Revenue Acts. Then he comes to Boston, and in 1774, in the wake of the Boston Tea Party, uh, people are spotting him on the street, say, hey, remember you got tarred and feathered, and this gets him really mad. At one point, he's about, one of these kids who's attacking him, he's about to hit over the head with a club, and George Robert Twelves Hughes, the shoemaker, comes and intercedes, and he gets hit on the head with a club that Malcolm's trying to whack this kid with. And then John Malcolm, being such an unpopular guy, and it gets, really gets him that people keep bringing up he was tarred and feathered. He gets tarred and feathered in Boston, too, in 1774. John Malcolm is the slightly older brother of Daniel Malcolm. They're from a large family in Maine, and both of them had made their way to Boston. They're only about a year and a half apart. So you think about this sibling situation where you have the one brother whom we remember as the enemy to oppression, and the other who is getting tarred and feathered for being a customs agent. You know, Brother Dan wants to be buried so he'll be beyond the reach of British revenue officers, and here is his brother, the British revenue officer. And the story is that John Malcolm's also a snitch. He's the one who's reporting when John Hancock's bringing in a ship filled with stuff and not paying taxes on it. Family story. I'm sorry, I don't know where John Malcolm is buried, but 
I'd like to go visit that grave too. Next time we're walking around, we'll have to find the lonely grave of John Malcolm. I suspect it's not in Boston. I think he probably left during the, uh, when the British troops left. That would be an interesting uh, search. Uh, Bob Allison, Suffolk University, this has been a perfect, perfect, great Thank session. Thank you so much. I know you Thank have you, to Bradley. do a meeting and I have to I do as well, but I will um, be checking in with you real soon because it's always great. very, very interesting.